0: You are listening to us, Unscripted Stories, brought to you by Northwestern University's Multicultural Student Affairs. We are recording at the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Adawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho chunk Nations. Welcome to another episode of Us Unscripted Stories. Um, I'm your co host for this afternoon, Aaron Golding. Um, I use he, him pronouns, and I'm an assistant director in multicultural student affairs at Northwestern University. Um, I want to introduce or um, ask my co host to introduce themselves.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Saeed Resco. I use they/them pronouns, and I'm an office an office assistant at MSA. Hi. Um, yes, I'm I'm Joe Scaletti. Um I use they/them and she/her pronouns, um, and I am a second year student, um, and I have been an OA um, at Multicultural Student Affairs for two years now. So I'm very glad to be working here, and I'm g- very glad to be here in this space with all of you.
0: And we are incredibly excited to welcome uh, Joe Bruchak to our conversation today, um, a native storyteller who's going to talk to us a lot about um, traditional storytelling and, and um, storytelling in general. Um, Joe, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hello, my friends. My name is Joseph with a peaceful one. I'm of the area we call Saratoga or the Medicine Spring Place, the Adirondack Mountain region of New York State. And I'll uh, know uh, human being is what I am, as are all of you. That's in the Appendix language.
0: Thank you, Joe. Um, and so just so you know, like the focus of our podcast is around storytelling and the power that storytelling has to build community and bring people together. Um, and, and so that's kind of um, why we were really excited to talk about uh, storytelling with you. Um, and so for our first question, we're just wondering, why did, you, why did you become a storyteller? Is it something you always knew you wanted to do?
1: I have to blame my children because I was a poet. I actually uh, went to Cornell University as a major in wildlife conservation, where I started my interest in nature, and then transferred into English because I began doing creative writing classes and went to Syracuse University on a writing fellowship. Got my master's degree plus a stipend and uh, was writing poetry, getting published. My first book in 1971 was a book of poetry. But I have two sons, Jim and Jesse, and when they were kids, I really wanted them to hear the stories that I did not get to hear when I was a child. I grew up at a time when a lot of people were hiding their identity or didn't want to stand out as Native Americans. Uh, my sister Marge, who's the head of Native American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, has described it as hiding in plain sight. Mm. A lot of our people in the New England area who were Native just did not draw attention to themselves because of all the, the dispossession, the forced movement the uh, actual murders that took place in many of our communities of indigenous people. I wanted my kids to hear stories. So I began telling them traditional stories and a friend of mine named John Gill, who was a publisher of something called new American and Canadian poetry and the crossing press. John said, I I know you, I've seen you with your kids. I'm sure you must tell them stories. We're starting to do some children's books. Could you put together a, a collection of traditional stories that you tell your kids? And that was how my first book got published. Interestingly enough, you'll appreciate this, it was a collection of Seneca stories that I had uh, reworked and I dealt with Seneca friends and also people such as, um, well, Arthur Parker, who was of uh, the Seneca descent on his father's side and had been a real scholar of his people. And um, Ely Parker, who was a hero of mine for uh, you know, all of my life, practically, since I first heard of him. So I put together this collection of stories and it was published as uh, Turkey Brother and Other Iroquois Stories and illustrated by John Cajones Svatn, a very uh, eminent uh, Mohawk illustrator. And I'd worked with John's dad, Ray Fadden, also who was a storyteller and a historian to try to get the stories told properly. And uh, I was then invited into a local school in the Ithaca area to uh, do an author visit with my book. And they wanted me to read from the book. And I kind of looked at the book and said, can I just tell you the stories? I put the book down and told them stories and I've been doing it ever since 1976. That was when it first began in terms of doing things in public. Hmm. Um, Long answer. Short
0: question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, appreciate that. Um, and as you were talking, I'm having a moment of, of, um, realization where, um, you were talking about books that you published and I'm like, I, the native American animal stories, that book is over there on a shelf right over here in my daughter's room and, and connecting with the, what you were talking about, about stories that I didn't grow up hearing either. Right. And wanting to make sure my children are, are aware of those stories or have access to them. So, um, I really, I really appreciate what you're saying. And, and for my And it made me think, like, what are the responsibilities that you see as a storyteller? You were kind of alluding to it, that there's an acknowledgement. There's knowing which stories to tell and when to tell them. But what Mm -hmm. what do you see as your responsibility as a storyteller?
1: I think my responsibility is to try to tell the right story at the right time for the right reason. Mm -hmm. And that when someone say, what's your favorite story? I will always say it's the one I'm telling at the time I'm telling it. Because if you don't give honor and respect and attention to the story, you may lose it. Um, I have a a friend who passed on a few years ago who is from England, actually Scotland. He was a a traveler. His name was Duncan Williamson, one of those people that were sometimes called gypsies or tinkers. And uh, Duncan told me when he was a child, his grandmother would always tell stories to him and his cousins. And she would begin... By taking a bag from her side and opening it up and saying, "Let's see what stories are in here tonight," she say, "Oh yes, I'll tell this story." Then she closed the bag. So one night, when Duncan and his uh, little relatives were um, sure that their grandmother was asleep, they slipped into her caravan, the trailer that was where she lived, and. Uh, they found the bag next to her bed and they took it outside and they opened it up and dumped it out. And those contents not weren't, weren't stories. It was bones and stones and sticks and things like that. Buttons, pieces of ribbon. So they put everything back very carefully, tied it up exactly as it was put it next to her, next to her bed. And the next night when the fire was lit and they gathered around the circle to hear stories, she said, let's see what stories, are you're going to try to do a Scotch accent we have here in my bag. <laughs> She out the bag and there was a long silence. And then she said, Someone has opened my bag and the stories have escaped. And I can never tell another story again. She never told wow. another story again. And Duncan said, through his entire life, his job was to find those stories he'd let mm. free and bring them back and show them respect as he did not as a child. And that's not a Native American story. But it's a story that I think we can understand in the context of traditional cultures throughout. You may have noticed I've been mentioning names; i not name-dropping. I'm acknowledging, right. and I think it's really, really important as a storyteller to acknowledge your sources, mm-hmm. acknowledge those who helped you along the way, and make sure that you you do honor to what you are doing, and and also that you don't do the wrong things. Mm -hmm. There are stories I've learned that I can only tell at certain times, at certain circumstances. There are stories I've learned that are only for myself Mm -hmm. and not to be told to anyone else. And I I don't think I'm an ethnologist or a a scientist. I think I'm a person who is attempting to do what tradition bearers do and that is to be honorable and correct in my relationship to the stories. Mm -hmm. And stories, we say, you don't have to say it, stories are alive. Mm-hmm. they're aware of us as much as we are of them. I truly believe this. So I think there's a real power to story itself. And if you are a good listener and have a good memory, uh, then that is going to be something that will help you on that path towards being a storyteller. Yeah.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Um, how would you describe the stories you tell? How, how do you describe them?
1: Well, I think that, uh, It's interesting because um, ethnologists and people who study this sort of thing say there are myths, uh, there are legends, and uh, there are various things. I call them traditions. I don't divide it into myth or legend or any of those terms which I know have specific meaning but also imply uh, that they are fanciful or untrue to some people's minds. Well, that's just a myth. That's a legend, no one knows that really happened. Uh, But we do know that it happened in one way or another. So to me, they are traditions or they are truths. And that is important for me to to see the story in that fashion. So that's how I describe them. And I don't break them up into divisions that they these are people of stories, these are animal stories, because the animals and the people are all together. I don't say creation of stories because creation is in all things. But I do say that every one of those stories has two characteristics that I tell. One, it's entertaining. Mm-hmm could be entertaining in a scary way, or a funny way, or uh, a thoughtful way. But secondly, there's lessons within the story. And you as the storyteller should be aware at least of some of the lessons that story is meant to impart. Although I have to say there are stories I've been telling for decades, and I'm always finding new lessons in some of them. And uh, occasionally I'll uh, do a storytelling program, let's say for a group of teachers, and I'll say, what lessons did you get from this story? and they'll start listing them, and invariably someone will say something I hadn't quite thought of in that way before, and I'll go, you know, you're right, it does have bad aspects to it. So to me, I think you have to be very humble in the face of the stories you tell and recognize they have real power, which needs to be respected. A dear friend of my name is Shanto Begay. Shanto is a, a Diné, a Navajo a illustrator, wonderful artist, and storyteller. Has written a number of books for kids and illustrated ones by other people. Um, coyote and Horned Toad is one of his. And we were just together on a Zoom broadcast uh, about a week or two ago, and uh, Shanto said, you know, the first snow has fallen. Now we can tell the stories of the little animals. And that is something that's part of in a tradition as I understand it, and I'm just summarizing from my own understanding, each snowfall opens another storytelling door. Mm. So you can only tell these stories after the first snow and then after the second snow, more can be added. Mm. And so finally, the great stories of creation, which are told in the heart of winter. And here in the Northeast, we we say among our various native people that uh, the storytelling time for many of our stories is between first frost, Mm and last frost, and they're not supposed to be told in the summertime because uh, you tell the story out of season, it may confuse things. The story should not be told um, when the animals can hear it. They uh, may say, oh, this is a story of how we got tricked by humans. We're not gonna get tricked that way again. And uh, they also say that uh, snakes like to hear stories. So if you tell a story, I've heard that from my Seneca friends. <laughs> if you tell a story at the wrong time, the snakes will come into your house to hear the story. And then when I was out in the Pueblos, uh, a friend of mine, the hero, Little Bird, who is a, uh, a Laguna artist, storyteller, and writer, uh, he told me down there the same thing is true. They don't tell certain stories because the snakes will come into your, into your house. And uh, actually, true story. Not that any of them are untrue, but in the sense of the fact that it happened to me. I was at the Bay Area Storytelling Festival in California about 20 years ago. And uh, I told a story, and then I walked outside. It was in a big eucalyptus grove over the Monterey area, and a beautiful warm day in December. I thought, you know, it's about 70 degrees here back home if I told this story the snakes would be asleep but I wonder I just wonder so I started walking across the clearing and there on the other end of the clearing was a great big yellow rat snake coiled up looking right toward the tent where I've been telling that story I kind of looked at the snake and I said um, sorry if I brought you out here you're not safe because there's a lot of really Silly people who would be afraid of you might try to hurt you. So, could you come with me? And I put my hand down and it crawled up my arm and wrapped around my arm. Then I walked deeper into the forest. I said, I think it'll be safer here until all these people go away. And it crawled off and disappeared into the underbrush. Wow. That's a great story.
0: I want to. I want to bring Saeed in to ask uh, the next question.
1: So um, I've been w- wondering about the significance of the relationship between the storyteller and the listener, mm-hmm. um, and kind of like um, wondering about um, if a if a personal connection between those two parties creates. Its own meaning of the story, or if the act of storytelling itself creates a connection between those two people. Not that those are mutually exclusive of, of each other, but just what your experience of that is. I think that a story is changed by being heard in the sense of its impact. If you have someone who is a listener there with you, uh, then that story is moving back and forth between. You. And taking on more life and more energy. Uh, we have a tradition which is similar all around the continent. A friend of mine named Johnny Moses, who is a wonderful Pacific Northwest storyteller, in the root tradition, knows, I believe it is six different coastal languages of uh, that Oregon and Washington area. And each one has a specific call and response within it. So he says a word and everyone who's listening repeats a word back to him in our tradition in the Northeast, among the uh, Haudenosaunee and also among the uh, Abenaki people, we'd say, "ho." Oh, and the listener says, hey. Mm-hmm. That reinforces the connection, lets you know you're being heard, and that they're they're still listening. If you go to Haiti, in Haiti I discovered it's Creek Crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I lived for three years in Ghana, West Africa, as a teacher, a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And uh, there when you start a story, you'd say, Mysigli, this is an eve. in the Anno dialect, Missigli Lu. And those listening would say Gly which is shall I tell a story? Glynava. Let Glee the story come. So you can see there is a kind of a plug-in that occurs between the storyteller and the story and the listener or listeners. And I think that it, it changes the atmosphere. Plus, I believe that the stories that I tell are often evoked by the listeners. I don't get up in front of an audience having planned to tell a story. Mm. Everything I'm saying to you today, none of this is planned. I'm just, Whatever is coming is coming. I didn't think about it ahead of time. And uh, uh, my really dear friend, Orrin Lyons, who is uh, one of the faith keepers of the Onondaga Nation, uh, really amazing human being, um, Oren has said, I just trust that the creator will give me the words to speak when it's time for me to stand up, and, uh, which is a great example. So that relationship between the, uh, the storyteller and the audience, I believe the storyteller is part of the audience. She is hearing the story at the same time she tells it uh, just as much as is the person who's never heard that story before.
0: Joe, I want to invite you.
1: Yeah, yeah I, um, I think that all that you've said about storytelling has been really powerful. I do wonder, though, um, if there's a time that you may have felt disheartened in like, your storytelling or in storytelling in general, and how you may have found peace or comfort um, despite that difficulty. A mm-hmm. uh, good friend of mine. I keep mentioning all these friends of I guess I got a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Kevin Locke. Kevin is an incredible Lakota storyteller. And Kevin is also a hoop dancer and a flute player. And if you don't know Kevin's work, get to know it, because he's one of the best. Mm. Kevin said to me in Lakota, I'll just say it in English, take courage from the story. That's an old Lakota saying, take courage from the story. Mm. There have been times that I've been disheartened and I've turned to a story And it has reminded me of something I almost forgot. And I think it's very easy to get disheartened when you're a young person coming up against a culture that may not recognize you. You have not yet been recognized as an individual for that matter. So now, I suppose in some people's minds, I'm an elder. I've had things published. I've got a doctorate. I've got all these things that are sort of credentials. And people might pay attention to me. There was a time when they didn't. When people... um, you know, told me that I wasn't the person to do something, that I shouldn't even bother to try because everybody else had done it before me or no one would listen to what I was going to say. And I heard that many times in my 20s. How, how, do,
0: how do stories help vitalize and sustain
1: Native communities?
0: What's your opinion on that?
1: Well, I think that the story is a common heritage. It's something that you all hold together. It's not something owned by any one person. And that the story often tells of you and your people in ways that gives you, as my friend Kevin Locke said, courage. It also gives you a sense of who you are and belonging. It helps you to understand the world around you better. And also, quite frankly, it is a great way to teach without really obviously teaching. It's not like you should know this. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not it. And storytelling is not a true false question. You know, it's not, there's not any one way to interpret it. Mm. Well, there are ways it can be misinterpreted. But that fact that a story is such an open ended, open minded thing, the mind of the story is open to the people. And I know communities where uh, they have revitalized their language and revitalized their storytelling, Mm -hmm. and they've found it has given great strength. And, uh, great purpose to have that there so within traditional cultures often the the writer in this case would be the oral tradition the one who told the story was really honored and respected in fact uh, you know seen as a heroic person mm-hmm. that woman that man who uh, held on to those stories and shared them was doing it not for themselves but for the community and I think that, uh, storytelling does help reinforce or maybe begin to reconnect community.
0: Mm. I think of when I think of traditional stories, I think of stories that are, um, you know, time immemorial, right. They're old, they've been around forever. Um, and, and those are the traditional stories, right? Like tra- I'm using air quotes here, traditional stories, right. Um, <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, for me, I'm always like, well, does that leave room for new stories to be created and new stories to tell? Um, and so I, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. And then also, what are the stories of today that future generations
1: might need to hear? Yeah. No, there's always new stories. Being being created. There's always new stories that talk of people, for example. Things that people have done become storytelling. I have a whole series of stories I tell about one of my heroes, Jim Thorpe, Mm-hmm. And those stories about Jim Thorpe like traditional stories that are sometimes very amusing, but they also teach a lot of lessons. And uh, let me give you an example. I've actually written three books about Jim now and did a documentary film for PBS called Jim Thorpe, World's Greatest Athlete. Mm-hmm. And while we were interviewing people for the film, uh, one of the people we interviewed was one of Jim's sons, Jack Thorpe, who became a buddy. Jack was just incredible. And uh, Jack told this story about his father. And I'll tell you the story. The story is that when Jim Thorpe in his later years began working in the movies in Hollywood, one of his jobs was to recruit other Native actors to be on films. So he was involved in a great many Hollywood films and sometimes uh, actually got to speak a few words, but mostly it was bit parts. There was one film that was being made, which was uh, starring a man named Errol Flynn. Now, people today may not know who Errol Flynn was, but he was a, a great sort of macho hero. He played pirates and um, you know, men of adventure. and He was really a terrible human being. Uh, quite frankly, the man was a slimeball, <laughs> honestly. And uh, Errol Flynn had this reputation of being a tough guy, but it was well known that any time he was on a movie set, if he picked a fight with anyone, that person had to go down fast because Mr. Flynn needed it and they shouldn't touch Mr. Flynn's face. any circumstances. <laughs> uh, so the filming was paused for a while. He was playing the part of George Armstrong Custer in this movie. They died with their boots on. And Jim Thorpe was, you know, sitting with a bunch of other Indian extras. And one of the Indian extras said to Jim, who was then in his late fifties, Hey Jim, can you still do that trick with a sledgehammer? And Jim said, well, I could give it a try. And they said, well, here's a sledgehammer. So they handed Jim a, uh, 10-pound sledgehammer, he took it by the handle, held it out, and then just did like this, brought it back and touched the hammer to his nose, and then straightened his hand out again. Now, if you have ever held out a sledgehammer by the end of its handle, try that sometime. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible mm-hmm. to do. Earl Flynn was walking by at that moment. He said, oh, I can do that, and he grabbed the sledgehammer and, boom, hit himself in the head, made a big nod on his head, made a pause filming. <laughs> So later that day, Jim and a bunch of the other Indian extras are over across the street sitting at this bar, the Brown Derby. And who should walk in but Errol Flynn, dressed as George Armstrong Custer, still wearing the same outfit. And he sees Jim Thorpe, and Jim has his back turned. So Errol Flynn sneaks up behind him, pulls back his fist, is about to sucker punch Jim from behind. And Jim just goes... and knocks Errol Flynn out cold. (laughs) He's laying there quivering on the floor. Jim Thorpe stands up and says, Custer's stuff is still weak. (laughs) (laughs) But Jack told that story and it's in the movie, it's in the documentary film that we made, but I started laughing, but I couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) And finally Jack said, Joe, I know it's a funny story, but why are you still laughing? I said, Jack, Jack, let me tell you something. I have a friend named Swift Eagle, who's Pueblo, and your dad recruited him into the movies, he was on that movie set, he was in that bar, he saw that happen, he told me that story 30 years ago, and Jack said, you mean it really happened? <laughs> <laughs> so to me, that's a modern story, but it's also a traditional story. Hmm. It is part of a tradition of characters that are tricksters, characters that are heroes, characters that do foolish things and get their comeuppance. And so the story within a story is also that Jim's son, Jack, didn't even realize it was a true story. <laughs> so uh, I love telling that story about Jim. Cohen. Yeah, And I think that stories like that are still happening every day. And I've even seen or heard stories where a traditional hero, um, like, say, uh, Manabozo, suddenly shows up in modern form steps into the story, or uh, a story that we have in our Benneke tradition about how Luce Gomba, who was our changer hero, uh, went across to Europe and met the king of France and had a contest with him and won the contest. Mm. And that story had to have come about, you know, after European arrival in Wisconsin. Mm. So stories are always coming. They're always being created. There will always be more stories.
0: Well, uh, Joseph Bruchak, it was great speaking with you. Um, really appreciate you taking some time to, um, talk to us on our podcast and, um, I hope we can remain in, in contact going forward.
1: Take care. As we say in the Abeniki language, um, which means have a good journey, sleep well, dream well.
0: Thank you for listening to Us, Unscripted Stories. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Support for this podcast is provided by Joe Scaletti, Emma Salam, Saeed Rezco, Sydney Hastings, and Jeanette Rojas. With support from Alicia Solier, Isabel St. Arnold, Aaron Golding, and Linda Luck. Subscribe to hear more from us.